Would you bow your hearts and pray with me this morning, please? Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise this morning for who you are. Father, we recognize that uh, all this is just a gift from you. We, we give you thanks for it. We ask that you would just continue to be with us throughout the rest of the service. Father, be with me as I open up your word. Uh, Father, provide not just clarity, but, but your truth, Father. Um, allow us to look different uh, when we leave this place. Father, we, we thank you. We recognize the gift of your son, his work on the cross. And we give you thanks and praise for that this morning as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, today we're going to actually begin a, a four-week series on the book of Galatians. Uh, Pastor Joel has very graciously uh, given up the pulpit for four weeks, and we're going to take a, a little break from Acts, but, but we're not going to go too far, because if you remember Acts 14 and 15, uh, some of the issues that, that Paul and, and Barnabas were dealing with in the Jerusalem Council has to do with some of the issues that we're going to talk about in Galatia, Galatians, and the intent is not to cover the entire book um, in the four weeks, but, but the hope is to highlight what I believe are just really four important pieces um, of the book. This week we're going to be looking at the gospel. Uh, the second week we're going to look more at justification through faith, that, that we as sinners are justified by Christ. The third week we're going to reflect on what it looks like in our, in our freedom of Christ uh, to love one another. And finally, the fourth week, uh, what it looks like as we boast in our motives, or as it's been called, heaven points. John MacArthur speaks of the book of Galatians this way. This is what John MacArthur says. Now the message of Galatians is the message of liberty. It is the message of freedom. It is the message of release from the bondage of legalism. And the whole book comes across like spiritual dynamite. It's doc doctrinal, intensely doctrinal. It's historic. It's practical. It's powerful. Martin Luther said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. And then he said, Galatians is my Catherine. To him, Galatians was as a wife, beloved. Others have called Galatians the Magna Carta of spiritual liberty. Now, I've been sitting in the book of Galatians for months. And, and I would echo the words that have been used to describe this amazing letter. I've not yet begun to call Galatians my Jessica, but perhaps someday. If you have your Bible with you this morning, or if you want to use one of the pew Bibles in front of you, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 6 through 10 this morning. This is what Paul writes in Galatians Chapter 1, starting at verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel for heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. 
as we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, this may be somewhat strange, but I want to begin the message with the end of my message. It's, a, it's actually a statement from John Piper about this particular passage. And the underlying truth of this passage is that there is one and only one gospel. It is therefore astonishing to turn away from it, away from God who calls and away from grace in Christ. There is one and only one gospel. It's, it's that simple, just one gospel. I mean, the problem that, that Paul dealt with in the first century is, is, was the same problem that, that Luther was dealing with in the 16th century, and it's the same struggle that we see throughout modern-day Christianity, dealing with people who were and are distorting, changing, manipulating the gospel. Now, now Luther found Paul's explanation of the gospel, gospel powerfully helpful. Rather than there being many different gospels, there's only one gospel, and it's the one Paul preached. And this truth, this truth should provide great comfort for us, and this truth should provide great hope for us. I mean, life is filled with change. I mean, it's actually filled with a pretty consistent, steady stream of change. I mean, some days it, it may seem like a, a slow-moving stream. And other days it, it feels as if the dam has just broke. I wonder how you like change. I mean, I, I like change, but I like it in certain sections of my life. When change leaks over to a section that I like just the way it is, I tend to get a little frantic. Now, my household is making some adjustments currently in our diet. And we're all dealing with it in many different ways. And, and I think my wife would agree, I'm doing a pretty good job when it comes to taking out Pepsi and sugar and snack cakes and things that I really, really like. But not everybody in my household is completely on board. On a recent trip to a grocery store with a few children in tow, my wife was in the middle of the aisle, and after denying requests for freaky fruits, which are a generic version of tricks, Little Debbie's, donuts, and Kool-Aid drink mix, along with other things, our daughter, our, our seven-year-old daughter, Gracie, declares in the middle of the store, Mom, you are ruining my life. <laughs> but sometimes change feels as if it is indeed ruining our lives, especially when we find ourselves opposed to the change. Other times, other times we're the flag-waving champions of change. It truly depends on whether we feel we're being benefited by the change itself. It is, however, in the midst of that flow of ever-changing that we should be clinging to the gospel. It does not change. It should not 
change. It does not bend. And it should not be used to accommodate our momentary fancies. It's the one and only gospel. In verses 6 through 10, Paul mentions the word gospel five times. Once in 6, 2 in 7, once in 8 and 9. Clearly this section is speaking about the gospel. And, and it also shows the importance that Paul is placing on the gospel. Paul opens up verse 6 with the word astonished. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Do you remember a time when you did something that astonished your parents? It was probably eight or so. And my sister and I were home alone for the summer, and we were washing our bikes in the driveway, basically just looking for an excuse to play in the water. So my sister, being much older and much wiser than I, decided that we should wash one of our stuffed animals as well. So the stuffed animal that we chose to wash uh, was this cat-lion-looking kind of thing that was in my room. It was about two or three feet tall, and it, and it just kind of sat in the corner of my room. So we sat it in the middle of the driveway, soaked it with a hose, then proceeded to lather it up with shampoo, and then sprayed it with water until there was nothing left than just a pile of wet green fur. I mean, we completely ruined this stuffed animal. My parents came home from work, and there is this pile of wet mess just sitting in the driveway. Because in our wisdom, we thought if we just let it sit in the sun, it would dry out. Now, it turns out that this cat was something that my father won my mom at a carnival fair while they were dating. And it may have had some special meaning to them. <laughs> my sister was wiser than I was. But, but what, I, what I remember from that moment was not really being punished. I mean, they spoke to us about being disappointed and sad. They talked to us about how it was ruined and, and the value that they had for it. But they recognized that we made a bad choice and they cared for us accordingly. Paul is showing the same sort of parental affection towards the Galatians. When he, and, he, and he speaks gently to them. He could have used words like, I'm ashamed of you. I'm angry at you. You are no longer my children. But since his purpose was to raise up those who had fallen and call them back from their error, he doesn't say that. Actually, Luther writes in his commentary, since he was trying to heal those who had been injured, it was not right for him to make their flesh wound any worse by putting stinging medicine on it so that he would hurt their wounds rather than helping them. By saying, I am astonished, he shows both that the situation grieved him and that it also displeased him that they had fallen away. He's genuinely surprised and disappointed at the church that they're abandoning the gospel in its pure form. But Paul's tone quickly changes. 
I mean, this is still somewhat parental in nature. He cares for these, these believers. But he's angered at those that would lead them astray. Parents, when, when their child is bitten by a dog, will chase the dog, but sympathize and comfort the child. He speaks about those that would change the gospel, those that would manipulate the gospel, add to the gospel, those preaching a different gospel. It's clear Paul's chasing a dog. I mean, look at verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. I mean, to hammer the point home, he says it again in verse 9, as we have already said to you, so now I'll say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you've accepted, let them be under God's curse. I mean, do you think Paul's serious about the gospel? I mean, his strong and and even his unyielding language would suggest that he is indeed serious about the gospel. I mean, Paul can see that the glory of Christ is at stake. The gospel is a gospel of grace. It's the good news about Jesus Christ and His substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes in it. So to add anything to the finished work of Christ is to degrade the cross. If something is finished, you cannot add to it. You cannot change it. To make any work necessary for salvation is to dishonor the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul actually writes later in Galatians, in chapter 2.21, he says, If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Paul also understands that the souls of men were at stake. The gospel is not just some trivial topic. It's not just something to be said as a handshake to one another. No, this is the means by which the Holy Spirit brings salvation to our souls. This carries weight. To hold fast to false views about the gospel is to hold fast to false views about the deepest question of all human life, which is our relationship with God. Oh, but worse than that, worse than holding a false view of the gospel is to teach a false view of the gospel, misleading others, guiding people away from the truth of salvation. That is Paul's concern. And it should be our concern. We should be upset at just the very thought of it. Think for a moment of the world we live in. We're surrounded by a culture that considers it intolerant and narrow-minded to express strong views. To disagree sharply with others brings a wrath of its own. You're looked down upon, you're shamed, all because you're expressing a different view. So to stand up and say that if anyone is preaching to you a gospel, then, then that what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. To fall under the curse of God is just inconceivable to the world we live in. And even many who are brothers and sisters in faith, to utter those words just seems inconceivable. John Stott in his book, The Message of Galatians, writes, If we cared more for the glory of Christ and for the souls of men, we too would not be able to bear the corruption of the gospel of grace. 
When was the last time you spoke, as Martin Luther says, dreadful thunderclaps against the corruption of the gospel? Or what about when was the last time you were just upset? Or, or maybe astonished or just in awe? I mean, the truth is we often just stand quiet, don't we? I mean, we don't want to speak out or, or stand up for the gospel because we don't want to be lumped in with those other fanatics. I don't want to alienate myself. And if I speak like that, then no one's going to like me. The underlying truth of this passage is there is one. There is only one gospel. It is therefore astonishing to turn away from it, away from the God who calls, and away from grace in Christ. Paul is expressing the strongest possible language that there is no other gospel. So what is the gospel that we should be so passionate about? There's a pastor and an author, his name's Joe Thorne, and his definition of the gospel I, I love. Joe Thorne writes, at its core, the gospel is Jesus as the substitute for sinners. We could summarize the whole by saying that in his life, Jesus lives in perfect submission to the will of God, and he fulfills his righteous standard. In his death on the cross, he quenches God's wrath against sin, satisfying the sovereign demand for justice. In his resurrection, he is victorious over sin and death. All of this is done on behalf of sinners in need of redemption and offered to all who believe. This is therefore very good news. Jesus' life is good news. For his obedience to the Father and fulfillment of the law is for us. While we as sinners fail to keep the law, Jesus was perfectly faithful. Jesus' death is good news because his death was payment for our sin. And by it we are cleansed from our guilt and released from condemnation. Jesus' resurrection is good news because his victory over death is ours. And, and through it we have to look forward to a resurrection of our own. And all that we have to do is believe. That's it. But that wasn't the case in Galatia. They heard this beautiful truth, and, and now others were coming in and adjusting it, manipulating it, changing it, adding to it so it would benefit them. They were turning the gospel, which seeks justification by obedience to the law rather than the righteousness which comes from God by faith in Christ. Seeking to say by adding to the one true gospel things like circumcision. You know, it's, it's great that you believe in the gospel, but, but we're going to need you to undergo this very painful procedure and then, and then you can be one of us. Oh, oh wait, did I forget to tell you that you also need to follow the Jewish feasts and, and the holidays? And, and, and you know what, just to make it easy, why don't you just observe all our traditions and then you can be like one of us. This once clear truth becomes cloudy and it even becomes unrecognizable. And Paul is angry. Now I do think it's important to point out that I don't necessarily feel that adding to the gospel is our biggest problem. 
Yes, there are flashes of legalism from time to time, but, but legalism is pretty easy to recognize and, and even to push back against. So if I told you that unless you wore a bow tie, you just can't be a Christian. Actually, better yet, you're not really welcomed here because this is how you should wear a tie. This is the way I understand Scripture to tell me this is what you should do. This is nothing This has nothing to do with my belief in the substitutionary work of Jesus. And the same goes for other freedoms that we have because of the freedom from condemnation. It's ludicrous. You would say, no, I'm not wearing, well, maybe you would just do the bow tie thing. But I do think there is something that we do struggle with more. It may not be adding to the gospel, but it it certainly changes it. We're often quick to hold back pieces of the gospel. I mean, this is often hard, especially when we speak the gospel to those that we love and we care about. I mean, nobody really wants to tell their parents who loved and cared for them that they're terrible sinners and that Jesus, without Jesus they're going to face an eternity in hell. I mean, that changes Thanksgiving dinner a little bit. but we can still be guilty of manipulating and adjusting it and changing it so it benefits us. I'll soften it up, and then mom and dad won't be so upset with me. Or what about the guy that you work with who's this great Catholic? He attends Mass faithfully, and he says he loves Jesus. But he doesn't truly understand the Gospel. I mean, do you cater to his opinions? Or do you speak to him the one true Gospel? And this is where we need to look at verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I have to tell you, this is a struggle for me. I, I like to tell you that I, I'm not in it to please people at all. Well, my actions would say otherwise. I wa- I'll, I'll confess, I, I said it to Pastor Joel in the back, I watched all you guys come in with shorts this morning. And I thought, how great would it have been to wear shorts this morning? It's hot outside, it's hot up here, to have shorts on. But I don't because I know that I shouldn't and I want you to like me. Right? But, but we do. But we do like saying things like, you know what, I'm playing for an audience of one. I mean, that's, that sounds good. Or, or my favorite is, I fear no one but God. Because that sounds tough and, and strong. And I think we really desire, I think this is true, I think we desire a life that is shaped by seeking the approval of God and not man. I believe that sitting on our couches at home or at our dining room tables or in our cars as we drive, I believe that we have a desire to live this way. I think it's a true desire that we have. But what happens so often is when we leave the house or we get out of the car, we begin to allow this 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 need for love and acceptance to take over. We become shaped by by wanting to be liked and loved by everyone we meet. 
So our sharp sword that we clung to so tightly now just becomes dull and and even useless. I mean, Paul makes it pretty clear. If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Faithfully serving Christ. Speaking of of the one true gospel, these things are difficult to do in the midst of a world that is broken, in a world that is sinful, in a world that is hurt. Brothers and sisters, don't allow your sword to become dull. Don't, Don't fear of losing acceptance and love. The Savior of the world has already shown you how much He loves you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So why? Why should I respond like Paul? Why should I stand against any other gospel? It's because the gospel has authority. We see this in the word called in verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Notice the words, the one who called you. There's a difference between the call of God and the call of man. There's a difference between the words of God and the words of man. You may, you and I, like to think that that our words carry authority. But they really have no power in themselves to bring about change. There's a difference between what we know and what we desire. We desire to have authority. We have a desire for people to respect and, and, and love us. And, and even bow in front of us. But what we know, if we embrace the truth of Scripture, is that authority comes from God. If you have children, then, then you experience this probably more often than you like, this battle of authority. Let me, let me just give you an example really quick. Let's just say you have nine children. I'm just throwing a number out there. Let's just say... Let's just say you have nine, and, and somebody or some, some ones are upstairs playing in the room. You've been working hard, and you have dinner ready to go, and you're putting it on the table, and you ask one of your other children to, to tell the siblings that dinner's ready. So what happens? They go, and they stand at the bottom of the stairs, and they yell up the stairs, dinner's ready. At which afterwards you inform them that you could have just done that yourself, that you were really looking for them to go upstairs and not just yell. But what do the siblings upstairs do? What is their response? They may yell, okay, or uh uh-huh, but do they come? No. So, So what happens? It is not until I... Dad, go to the bottom of the stairs and yell up, dinner's ready, because I told you, I could have done that myself, that I get a response. It is not until they hear my voice that they know I have to come. Because as much as Molly and Scotty and Mikey and Jack and Noah, Grace, Calvin and Paige and Bobby, well, Bobby can't talk yet, but, but they think they have authority over their siblings, their words are just words. There's a difference between Noah calling Scott for dinner and Dad calling Scott for dinner. Now now think of it about the authority of God's words now. God says, let there be light. 
and there's light. Jesus says to the raging storm, quiet and be still. And the wind dies down immediately and the sea is calm. Jesus says to the man with leprosy, be clean, and he's immediately healed. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, and the dead man walks. God's word has authority. It is because of that authority that we can believe and hold close to a gospel, the one gospel that we can trust, the gospel, the one gospel that we can hold close to the unchanging, unbending, unbreaking gospel, the one gospel. The underlying truth of this passage is that there is one and only one gospel. It is therefore astonishing to turn away from it, away from God who calls and away from grace in Christ. There is one and only one gospel. It is that simple. Just one. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, we we again just thank you for your word. We thank you that we can, first of all, that we can have you revealed to us, that that you are so kind in that. Thank you for, for doing that. Father, thank you for providing examples in Scripture for us to come back to and read. Father, that it's never changing. Father, we thank you for for your gospel. We thank you for your son, his life, his death, his work on the cross. Father, we thank you for his resurrection. Father, we trust in these things. Father, allow us to hold those close. Father, allow us to look at the world around us and be offended when we hear a different gospel. Allow us to be upset, Father, when, when we don't hear the one gospel. Father, allow us to continue to remind ourselves of the gospel. Allow us to continue to read the gospel, surround ourselves by the gospel. So, Father, when we grab our sword, it is sharp. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Father, we ask all these things in his name. Amen.